Good afternoon. This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's European Affairs Subcommittee will now come to order. And as I explained to our witnesses, we are going to be having two votes in the middle of this hearing. So we will take turns. We expect the first one to come at about 2.45. So we will just try and take turns going to vote. And uh, hopefully that way we don't have to stop the hearing. Um, let me begin by saying how much I appreciate working with Ranking Member Johnson on this hearing. This is a very important topic and very timely. Black Sea security reviving U.S. policy toward the region. And very much appreciate the three um, very expert witnesses we have this afternoon. The Black Sea is a hot spot for the competition between Russia and the West over expansion of the transatlantic community. Six countries, Russia, Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Georgia, and Turkey, hold varying sizes of coastline in the region. But only one country treats the Black Sea as if it's its own sea, and that is Russia. So this hearing provides us an opportunity to step back and to take a more holistic look at the Black Sea region and the patterns of encroachment by Russia. We can also investigate how the U.S. and NATO can each enhance and strengthen their approach to the Black Sea region. I'm encouraged by recent signaling from the NATO Secretary General that NATO will develop an overarching plan for defense of the region. I'm also pleased to see that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Georgia, Ukraine, and Romania last week. I think this is a welcome shift in the approach to counter Russia's increased attempts to control the Black Sea. Russia has a history of waging war and deploying illegal and aggressive tactics to advance its control in the region and to prevent NATO from encroaching upon its southern border. In 2008, Russia waged war against Georgia and illegally seized the territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In, excuse me, in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and fueled a separatist insurgency in the Donbass region of Ukraine which is a conflict that continues to claim the innocent lives of Ukrainians every day. This annexation also empowered Russia to establish a Mediterranean naval task force, significantly enhancing its Black Sea fleet. Collectively, these brazen acts made it painfully clear that Russia was and is prepared to exert economic, military, and political power to thwart NATO expansion and expand its control in the Black Sea. Russia's malign intentions were on clear display earlier this summer when Senators Portman Murphy and I visited Ukraine and Georgia in June. We went to the border with South Ossetia, where we witnessed Russia's ongoing borderization and hostile actions against Georgia. What appeared to be minor territorial aggression from Russia, such as continuing to move the fence further away from the boundary line with South Ossetia, is part of a larger pattern of Russia's bellicose behavior that must continue to be condemned. And I very much appreciate the continued work of the EU monitoring mission who keep watch over those borders. Boundaries. The transatlantic alliance that has maintained our world order for more than 70 years has played an important role in responding to Russia's belligerent behavior. After the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, 
NATO successfully shored up support for our Eastern European allies. Seabreeze, which is an annual exercise involving participation of NATO allies and partners, has also sent an important message of solidarity to our Black Sea allies. However, the NATO response to the Black Sea demands more coordination and political unity like we've seen in the Baltic Assurance Initiative where our Baltic allies help their cause by standing united against Russian aggression. The inconsistent perspectives for NATO's role among Black Sea nations has also exacerbated this disconnect in our approach. Although Romania has called for greater NATO presence in the region, Turkey has made it clear they don't want an increased NATO presence. Again, this hinders a coordinated effort. While robust transatlantic relations are key to combating Russian aggression, the greatest defense against Russia is strong democratic institutions in the Black Sea region. Countries like Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia must continue to rebuff Russia's malign activity by forging ahead on necessary democratic reforms to reflect the will of the people and to move them closer to the transatlantic community. Confirming ambassadors who will be seated in each of these countries is another key piece of the puzzle to support democracy in the region and to strengthen bilateral ties with the West. President Biden should swiftly appoint an ambassador, well, nominate an ambassador to Ukraine to reflect the priority and commitment we place on our bilateral relationship there. But most critical, partisan politics waged by certain members of this committee are obstructing the body from fulfilling its obligation to confirm experienced, qualified diplomats in the most important parts of the world, including the Black Sea region. And we've seen that with the appointment of Kent Logston to Moldova and Julie Smith to NATO. These are only two of 50 nominees that are being held up for political purposes. We need a fully operational diplomatic corps to ensure our national security structures are staffed and supported. With that, let me turn to Ranking Member Johnson. Thank you, Madam Chair. I also want to welcome our witnesses. Uh, thank you for your uh, detailed uh, testimonies, and I'm looking forward to hearing your oral testimonies and your answers to our questions. Um, I also want to thank Madam Chair for uh, holding this hearing. I think I'll, I'll just ask that my opening statement to be entered in the record. Uh, an awful lot would be repetitive of what you just said, which I think should send a very strong signal. I think maybe that's the most important part of this hearing is the signal it sends to the region how strong the bipartisan support is for this region and for these nations that are really trying to struggle under the constant assault, uh, both physical as well as just mental uh, disinformation, uh, assault uh, from Russia. So, you know, I hope people in the region understand that. Uh, I think it's, it's a good sign. Um, I, I, and I hate to bring up kind of the 800-pound grill in the room, though, uh, because as I read the testimonies, as I listen to uh, 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 Senator Shaheen's opening statement, I think an awful lot of what's going to be suggested here is, is going to be talking about American leadership. And, of course, you can only lead if you're strong. And right now, the first 10 months of this administration, uh, strength is not exactly what's been projected. I, I don't think I have to go into detail, but uh, not to steal the thunder from Mr. Townsend's uh, opening statement, his final line is, it does not have to be the U.S. that shoulders the burden alone 
but it does fall to the U.S. to lead the way. And I think that's crucially true, but in order to lead, we must be strong. We need to project strength. And unfortunately, that does not appear to be the path that this nation is on right now. But uh, anyway, appreciate the hearing. Um, I think the strong bipartisan support is probably a, a wonderful outcome for it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Johnson. We will submit your um, testimony for the record and or your opening statement for the record. And I will also point out that I've received written statements from a number of embassies representing Black Sea countries, which outline their respective initiatives in the region and include recommendations for enhancing U.S. policy. So without objection, I will submit these also for the record. Um, as I said earlier, we have three real experts on the Black Sea region who are here to share their thoughts with us today. Um, let me begin by um, thanking our first witness, Jim Townsend. He is currently the adjunct senior fellow in the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. After eight years as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy in the Obama administration, Jim Townsend completed more than two decades of work on European and NATO policies in the Pentagon, at NATO, and at the Atlantic Council. Um, our second witness is Dr. Alina Polyakova. She's president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. She is a recognized expert on transatlantic relations with over a decade of deep expertise on European politics, Russian foreign policy, and digital technologies. And our final witness this afternoon is Ian Brzezinski. He currently serves as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, supporting its Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and its Europe Center. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO Policy from 2001 to 2005, during which his responsibilities, like Mr. Townsend's, included NATO expansion, alliance force planning and transformation, and NATO operations in the Balkans, the Mediterranean, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, we have much more extensive biographies on each of our witnesses that are available for members of the committee. So, with those introductions, let me ask each of our witnesses if they could uh, try and keep their opening remarks to five minutes. We will submit the full testimony for the record, and we will ask you to go in the order in which I introduced you. So, Mr. Townsend, you will be first. Thank you. Chairman Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, and members of the Subcommittee on Europe, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss Black Sea security. The U.S. faces a threat from Russia along a frontier, beginning in Alaska and ending in southern Europe at the Black Sea, the anchor of NATO's southern flank. Along this line, almost daily, Russian forces test the defenses of NATO allies and partners. Russia also employs gray area tactics such as cyber attacks, disinformation, or aggressive military exercises to bully or intimidate these nations. For the Russians, a critical part of this frontier is the Black Sea region, not just because it is home to Russia's Black Sea fleet and an important trade route for Russian exports, but more importantly, as a defensive buffer and bastion that protects Russia from threats emanating from the south and from which Russia can project power outwards into the Mediterranean and the regions surrounding the Black Sea. The restoration of Russian military capability in the Black Sea is well documented 
since the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Russian-occupied Crimea now encompasses significant ground forces, combat aircraft, and new naval vessels, all protected by advanced sensors and missile systems. Included in this Russian modernization are six new Kilo-class submarines equipped with caliber-class cruise missiles, which can strike deep into Europe. This geopolitical balance in the Black Sea wasn't always this way. In 2007, the Black Sea was ringed by nations who were either NATO allies or partners on the road to membership. Today, that political geography has changed dramatically, with Russian forces partially occupying the two NATO partners, Ukraine and Georgia, to keep them out of the alliance, and a NATO ally, Turkey, whose bilateral relationship is stronger with NATO's adversary, Russia, than with most NATO allies. This geostrategic shift has not been lost on the U.S. or NATO, but actions taken to strengthen deterrence in the region has been slow and comprised of half measures. Unlike in the Baltics, no NATO battle groups have been deployed to the region or NATO command structure put in place to rebuild deterrence. Instead, NATO provided a tailored forward presence based on Romanian efforts to establish a headquarters unit and a multinational brigade that could be offered to NATO in the event conflict erupted. The U.S. has been more proactive, periodically sending guided missile cruisers into the Black Sea, rotating forces and air assets into Romania, and investing millions to improve training areas and air bases in Romania and Bulgaria. As Secretary of Defense Austin's recent trip to the region demonstrates, the Biden administration recognizes its importance. However, what long-term priority will be given U.S. force presence in the Black Sea region is still unclear. Unlike the Nordic Baltic region, the complex politics and history of the Black Sea region make it difficult to develop either a regional or a NATO approach to strengthen deterrence. NATO initiatives to establish a presence in the Black Sea usually run afoul of Turkey, which considers itself the guardian of the Black Sea. To minimize Allied presence in its backyard, Turkey blocks NATO Black Sea initiatives by reassuring allies that the Turkish Navy has the Black Sea well in hand, and that NATO should avoid initiatives that unsettle the Russians in the Black Sea. Such a seemingly low priority, given the Black Sea, has likely not escaped the attention of Moscow. It has not escaped the attention of Beijing either, where the Chinese are taking advantage of the underdeveloped areas of southern Europe to build infrastructure, ports, and railroads with strings attached. It would be dangerous to continue giving the growing Russian dominance in the Black Sea region a low priority. The longer we in NATO wait before we make a serious investment in Black Sea deterrence, both militarily and economically, the harder it will be to do so as conflict nears, or impossible to do so as conflict erupts. To counter and deter Russian activity in the Black Sea region, the U.S. and its allies at NATO need to develop a strategy that encompasses not just military actions, but economic, political, and developmental assistance to address the underdeveloped areas in the region. What I provide below are six suggestions for the military component of such a strategy. Number one, keep a focus on Europe and the threat from Russia, even as we turn to the Indo-Pacific. As the administration drafts its global posture review, U.S. military posture in Europe should reflect a high priority to strengthen deterrence in the Black Sea region. 
Number two, rebalance NATO force structure in Europe. NATO command and force structure needs, needs to be rebalanced with a focus on NATO's southern flank. The rebalancing should include NATO making the Black Sea regional plan a high priority for accelerated completion, as well as upgrading its tailored forward presence with a NATO battle group. Additionally, the Romanian-run headquarters multinational corps southeast should become a standing NATO regional command. Number three, increased presence of NATO and U.S. forces in the Black Sea region. The rhythm and number of NATO and allied deployments and exercises can still be increased so that there is almost a permanent presence of NATO forces in the region, with allied navies taking part in rotations to the Black Sea to provide a constant naval presence. Number four, improve maritime domain awareness and intelligence collection and analysis in the Black Sea region. Romania could host a Black Sea Intelligence Fusion Center to develop a common operating picture of Russian activity in the Black Sea, analyzing intelligence collected from periodic rotations to Romania of NATO, partner, or allied assets such as drones or P-8 maritime patrol aircraft. Number five, repair relations with Turkey. The United States and Turkey need to repair their formerly close relationship. To do this, we must help the Turks find a way out of the corner they've painted themselves into by buying the S-400 and being expelled from the F-35 program. We must also find a way to meet the Turks halfway in their tech transfer desires in a Patriot air defense system purchase. Finally, we should accelerate the time when we can wind down honorably the U.S. military relationship with the Syrian Kurds in the fight with ISIS. Finally, last point, security assistance. Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, and Georgia can take on an even greater role in Black Sea security if provided a tailored, targeted, multi-year security assistance funding package that helps them acquire capabilities such as reconnaissance drones, anti-submarine warfare platforms, mining, and anti-ship missile systems. These are six suggestions to improve NATO deterrence in the Black Sea region. But what is especially important is the development of a strategy that can weave military and economic and financial initiatives together to reduce the vulnerability of this region to intimidation and exploitation. It is not too late to develop such an integrated strategy and to bring allies, partners, NATO, and the European Union along to help implement it. But such a strategy will not work without U.S. leadership. It does not have to be the United States that shoulders this burden alone, but it does fall to the U.S. to lead the way. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Townsend. Dr. Polyakova. Uh, Chairwoman Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the subcommittee, it's an honor and privilege to address you today on this critical issue for United States national security. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Since our founding, SIPA, the organization I head, has worked to raise awareness on the strategic importance of the Black Sea region for the United States and our allies. But with the caveat that the views I discuss here today do not represent those of the organization, which takes no institutional position. The Black Sea region is strategically critical to broader transatlantic stability. It is where Russia, Europe, the Middle East, the Balkans, and the Caucasus come together, 
And it's also the locus of the Kremlin's tests against the line's credibility and resolve, which have escalated over the last two decades in the conventional and non-conventional domain. Russia sees the Black Sea region um, as a core area where it can achieve its foreign policy objectives. The first one being uh, desire to undermine NATO by pressuring Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova at the same time, countries that Russia sees as its sphere of influence and where it has incited so-called frozen conflicts or gray zones. Crimea, which Russia seized illegally in 2014, is key for these efforts. Today, the Russian efforts to militarize Crimea have turned the peninsula into an unsinkable aircraft carrier, allowing the Kremlin to build capabilities and project power far, far beyond the Black Sea region. Russia also retains leverage over Ukraine by blocking access to key ports and undermining the freedom of navigation. It's important to note that just this week, some 20 warships and auxiliary Russian vessels were involved in the latest Russian exercises to intimidate, intimidate NATO partners and allies. The Black Sea is, of course, a testing ground for Russia's full-spectrum warfare, most notably in the cyber and information domain. And we have to understand that Russia's military aggression always occurs in concert with asymmetric tactics. Disinformation in particular accompanies Russian military aggression, as we just saw this summer with the incident with HMS Defender. Such campaigns produce a fog of war environment where the risk of direct conflict is increasingly likely and we are ill-prepared to deal with this kind of hybrid warfare. It must be said that while Russia has established itself as the dominant power in the region, the Kremlin's capabilities are limited and we still have time and must turn back the tide with strategic U.S. leadership and commitment to ensure that the Black Sea does not become a permanent security black hole. We must respond to Russian hybrid threats while simultaneously building long-term stability and security in the region. To do so, I elaborate quite a few recommendations in my written testimony. I will highlight uh, just three buckets here. First, that such a strategy for U.S. leadership in the Black Sea must see resilience, both in terms of economic and democratic resilience, and invest with a long view towards the region. What we can do in that regard is support independent media, investigative journalist groups, and media literacy education across the entire Black Sea region. These kinds of groups, the independent media sphere in particular, is the best bulwark to, pretend, to protect against Russian disinformation. To that end, with our limited resources, and we have to admit that we have a bandwidth issue in the United States and a priority issue, but we can get the most bang out of our buck if we prioritize Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, the non-NATO, non-EU member states that require the most support and have the fewest access to those resources. We must encourage economic investment as a tool for broader regional cooperation and cohesion by first delivering on the U.S. commitment to the Three Seas Initiative, uh, which was proposed under the last administration, the $1 billion uh, commitment, and we must provide alternatives to Chinese investment, which is actively playing a role to undermine regional cohesion, and particularly in the telecom and broader IT infrastructure. For that, the 2021 Transatlantic Telecommunications Security Act is key. Number two, we have to work with regional allies to establish a dialogue around a shared understanding of Black Sea security. The six plus one dialogue including Bulgaria, Georgia, and Moldova has to be a part of it as well, 
Romania, Turkey, and Ukraine, and the United States can align on a shared vision for the region and engage Turkey, while Turkey has been a very challenging ally. Um, in the Black Sea is an area where Turkey is at odds with Russia, and we should use that to continue to engage Turkey and move beyond our quarrels over S-400 and F-35. Lastly, we have to emphasize a strategy that includes responding to non-conventional threats in the cyber and information domains. In this regard, we should consider opening an operational hub in the region. Romania is the most natural partner and ally for this to coordinate NATO and EU efforts in the hybrid domain, particularly in cyber operations and Russian disinformation efforts. Undoubtedly, limited US resources and bandwidth will mean a greater role for US allies in the, regions, in the region, particularly NATO and the European Union. The US will have to do more with less, but the Black Sea is where relatively limited resources can make a profound difference for long-term allied resilience and US global leadership. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Brzezinski. Thank you, Chairman Shanyan. Can you hear me? Thank you. Can you hear me now? Fantastic. Chairman Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for conducting this hearing on how to promote peace and stability in the Black Sea region. For more than a decade and a half, this region has been the zone of Europe's most intense confrontation and violent conflict. It has become the soft underbelly of European security. We have witnessed, as my colleagues listed, Russia's invasions of Ukraine and Georgia, its occupation of their territories and that of Moldova, its use of Crimea as a hub for an anti-access area denial zone spanning across the Black Sea, its massing of military forces in the region, including last spring, and its harassment of allied aircraft and ships in the Black Sea. The Black Sea has been transformed into a Russian military lake that President Putin uses to further his disruptive and expansionist objectives in the region and beyond. Moscow exercises the full spectrum of hybrid warfare across the region, including trade and energy embargoes, cyber attacks, information warfare, and even sabotage and assassination. In the absence of a more comprehensive and more assertive strategy, this region will likely experience further Russian aggression, including an increased risk of military conflict. Allow me to highlight four priorities essential to an effective Black Sea strategy. First, it must strengthen military deterrence and defense in the region. Last week's NATO Defense Ministerial underscored the need for our allies to address longstanding capability shortfalls, particularly in the air and missile defense realm, long-range fires, reconnaissance platforms, all of which are needed in the Black Sea region. The alliance, including the United States, must do more to help Georgia and Ukraine strengthen the lethality of its armed forces, or their armed forces. But the alliance must also increase its footprint in the region. NATO should create a joint training and evaluation center in Ukraine, just as it's done to support Georgia. NATO's tailored forward presence in the Black Sea region consists of only a headquarters element in Romania. It should be reinforced with stationed land, coastal, and naval combat elements, more akin to something like we see in the Baltic Sea region. I agree with my colleagues that a NATO intelligence fusion center 
should be established in Romania or Bulgaria to enhance the alliance's situational awareness across the entire Black Sea region, across all the challenges it faces. And this reinforced NATO presence should be complemented by the deployment of a U.S. Brigade combat team to the region. Let me also emphasize that an effective deterrence strategy also requires a clear path for Georgia and Ukraine to NATO membership. NATO enlargement is one of the great success stories of post-Cold War Europe, where NATO membership has been granted, peace and security has been strengthened. That success is in stark contrast to the alliance's hesitancy regarding Ukraine and Georgia's request for NATO membership. Two invasions testify to this. Responding affirmatively and unequivocally to the transatlantic aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine is essential to enduring peace and stability in the Black Sea region. A second priority of Black Sea strategy is countering the dissemination of false and intentionally divisive information. Washington essentially disarmed itself in 1999 when it closed the doors of the United States Information Agency, USIA. That, that multi-billion dollar department was our frontline force in the realm of information warfare. I think Congress should reestablish a modernized version of USIA so that we can return to the offense in this dynamic and fast-paced dimension of international affairs. Strengthening regional economic prosperity and resilience should be a third priority of a Black Sea strategy. Toward this end, the United States should robustly support the Three Seas Initiative. This is a central European launch and led effort to leverage the power of private capital to develop cross-border infrastructure in the region spanning between the Baltic, Black, and Adriatic Seas. It's all about marshalling infrastructural connectivity to generate economic growth, strengthen economic resilience, and complete the vision of an undivided Europe. With bipartisan support, the United States announced it would invest up to $1 billion into three seas energy projects, including a $300 million equity investment into the Three Seas Initiative Investment Fund. That really injected real momentum into the initiative. However, a year later, these promises remain unfulfilled and risk becoming a drag on the initiative, especially in the capital markets it seeks to engage. Allow me to urge Congress to use its authorities to direct the United States government to execute its pledge to make an equity investment into the Three Seas Fund. And let me second my, my colleague's point or suggestion. Let me urge Congress also to pass the Transatlantic Telecommunications Security Act. TTSA would complement U.S. government authorities to invest in energy infrastructure in Central Europe with similar authority to assist this region develop a secure telecommunication network, secure telecommunication networks. And finally, and just briefly, a Black Sea strategy should also seek engagement with Russia where constructive cooperation is possible. And a logical place to start is arms control and confidence building measures to enhance military stability. Madam Chairman, let me close by emphasizing that much is at stake in the Black Sea region. This includes the security of some of our closest allies and partners, as well as the future of the international rules-based order, which today in the Black Sea region is under sustained attack. Thank you. Thank you very much to each of you. I think Senator Johnson will go vote, and when he returns, I will then go vote. So let me begin um, with a question to each of you, actually, um, because I was interested that None of you really talked very much about the 
differences between the Black Sea countries themselves over how they view their future. So how much of the challenges that we're facing now is a function of lack of unity among those Black Sea countries? Obviously, Turkey is one um, exception because you mentioned Turkey. And how much is it a failing policy among NATO and Western allies? And based on that, do we think Russia is succeeding in the Black Sea region? And I guess I would ask each of you if you would respond to that. Thank you, Senator. I think that's a, a great place to start our discussion. And I will say that uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably all the above in terms of what you said. Uh, each of those nations that are around the Black Sea, their culture, their history, their traditions shape their relations with one another. And as we have tried to put together a regional uh, approach to dealing with Russia, we run into those relationships. Uh, historically, uh, Bulgaria and Turkey have had trouble with one another. Uh, politically, in Sofia and Bulgaria, uh, the government has traditionally uh, leaned towards the, the, their old relationship with Russia, particularly in the intelligence communities. And so it's a bit more of a, uh, of a tender uh, feeling towards Moscow than you would find next door in Romania. Uh, and Romania um, instead has been one of the first of all the partners when it was a member of, of PFP and then as an ally, they were always the first in line to take on uh, NATO initiatives or take on NATO missions. So you have the opposite there. Of course, Georgia and Ukraine, um, I think my colleagues laid out very well the problems that, that they have now being partially occupied by the Russians uh, and not knowing what their future looks like, uh, whether it's with the European Union or with NATO. So, so I think NATO uh, has had trouble dealing with this. Uh, they're used to dealing with uh, Western Europe, with the older allies, or with the Nordic nations, where there's, there's more of a collective view on what needs to be, needs to be done in terms of Europe. Uh, it's easier to work in those regions than in the Black Sea region, where you're running into these historic problems, and just trying to get Bulgaria and Romania to work together on a, a specific uh, initiative, such as a naval group. I found that to be very difficult to do because of the different politics. So, uh, so it's just, it's so it's a hard task, uh, and I think because it is as hard as it is, uh, I think NATO and maybe the U.S. shies away a bit from it because it is just very difficult to pull off. Dr. Polyakova, do you have do you want to add to that? Yes, it's mic on. Okay, there we go. Uh, I, I agree with everything that. Um, that Jim just laid out, but I would add to that the reality of take a step back. Um, there is a huge complexity of alliances in the region. There's no question about that. And we know some of the problems involved with different perspectives on the Black Sea, but all the countries, to a certain extent, are united in their fear of Russian militarization of the region. And that includes Turkey. Um, and that includes the rest of the allies as well. And I think this is where U.S. leadership really matters. And before we start to think about specific projects or work we want to do across the region, we need to establish a shared vision for what security actually means and an understanding of a division of labor that would spread both responsibility, whether it comes to countering information operations or being the military heavyweight in the region, which of course is Turkey, and spreads liability across the region. I think this is something Turkey might actually welcome because they're often the target of uh, Russian aggression when the when the relationship between Erdogan and Putin isn't going so well. 
So I think there are many opportunities for us to undermine what Russia sees as its main advantage, which is a divided region. But it's divided because there hasn't been a single leading voice to try to bring everyone to the same table. And I think this is exactly where the United States has to start. Mr. Brzezinski, do you agree with that? I think my colleagues are spot on. The uh, only thing I would add is that I, I think there's actually more of an opportunity now to drive forward a, a coordinated regional response uh, to the challenges of the, of the Black Sea. And that's because particularly the Russian aggression in, in Ukraine and its recent um, uh, violence essentially in the Sea of Kerch and, and the Black Sea, its mobilization of a significant amount of offensive capability in the region, has kind of unified perspectives in the Black Sea. I see this between Bulgaria and Romania. There's greater consistency in the view of Russia and the challenge it faces across Bulgaria, Romania, Georgia, and, and Ukraine. Uh, and when you have that kind of consensus in five of the six uh, countries there, uh, it makes it a little bit easier to work with Turkey uh, and uh, to bring Turkey on board to a, a, a more common approach by the region and when you have that, you're more, going to be more effective in able to bring our West European allies and partners uh, in, in, into that game. So I recognize the historic difficulties. They're real. They still persist today. But the opportunity for an effective strategy, I think, now is, is, is before us. And all it needs is some strong American leadership. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Chairwoman. Um, Mr. Brzezinski, uh, you indicated um, uh, that you thought that there should be a path to NATO membership potentially for uh, Ukraine, uh, Georgia. There have been some that have argued that that uh, putting such a path in place would give Russia the excuse they want to uh, incur even more aggressively militarily in, in their territory. Is that something uh, that that uh, that you or, or Mr. Townsend or others are concerned about? Uh, uh, that, that somehow uh, this kind of discussion gives Russia the excuse they want to, uh, to take further military uh, action? I think it is, Senator Romney, I think it is a concern we should watch, but it's a manageable concern. Because if you look at the balance of power between the West and Russia, it's overwhelmingly in the West's favor. And if the West can be put on a track, uh, a, a determined track to bring these two countries aboard as they, as they wish, uh, back it with the political, military, and economic muscle that comes, that NATO brings to the table, I think we're in a position to drive forward that, that integration while at the same time deterring Russian aggression. The problem is, in the past, is that we have communicated a hesitant approach, a divided approach. And I'm not saying that such an approach can come into, into being right away. It's going to require, you know, a real committed diplomatic effort on part of the United States to bring our West, particularly some of our West European allies on board. And it won't happen without American leadership, but the capacity is there for this to actually occur and complete the vision of an undivided Europe. Dr. Polakova or, or Mr. Townsend, do you agree? Um, I, I agree with everything um, Ian just said. I, I would also add that we cannot forget the EU integration piece of this. Um, EU integration and accession for Central Eastern Europe has been the core driver of reforms um, in the judicial sector, in the civil society sector, and in the defense sector in all of these countries. It's one reason why countries like Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia have these so-called frozen conflicts or gray zones on their borders because Russia 
wants to prevent them from joining the EU as well as NATO. It's not just about NATO. And to your direct question, you know, I, th I find that we spend a lot of time worrying about what the Kremlin might do. And we don't spend enough time thinking about what we should do. And I think it's, it's high time that we take an approach and a strategic view of the region first that will serve our national security interests, that will serve the broader regional uh, national security interests, rather than thinking about what might the Russians do to react. I think it's a manageable problem um, on the Russia side, as Ian correctly said. Uh, but I think this is where we need to just switch how we're thinking about the problem. Thank you. Mr. Townsend? I would agree with my colleagues as well. And um, Senator, I would also uh, you know, agree with you too in terms of how delicate and, and difficult this can be and has been with Russia. But, but, but because of that, we allow those fears to hobble, uh, hobble our approach uh, in the region. We allow our fears to dictate what we do, as my colleagues have pointed out. And I think, I think a path to membership uh, can be managed in such a way that it doesn't set off a, uh, an immediate conflict uh, with Russia. I think such a path includes uh, just beginning with the membership action plan. Uh, which is, uh, you know, which begins to put these two uh, candidates um, into a, a process where we begin to look at their capabilities. It's not that we haven't done this already, but it's part of this, this, this path that, uh, that uh, Ian uh, talked about. And I think that would be a logical first step. It shouldn't be something that would light a fuse. It's something that we can manage. And I think uh, we need to seriously consider beginning with a membership action plan. Thank you. Very... Uh, Difficult question, I think, for any of us to respond to, but that's trying to understand what's going on or what was going on in Turkey's mind, uh, how it was that they decided to go ahead and buy the S-400, uh, what their plans are as it relates to uh, their relationship with, with Russia and with NATO. Uh, did they underestimate the response that would come from, uh, from NATO, uh, the, the uh, fact that we have withdrawn uh, production elements from the F-35? Uh, as a result of their decision, do they just miscalculate or do they have a different uh, objective in mind uh, that, that, that we haven't fully uh, understood? And I, th this is sort of for any one of you to respond to, but I must admit that I find Turkey's actions to be um, uh, uh, hard to understand and, and explain. Senator Romney, if I could just add another point on, on NATO enlargement. If you look at the history of the debate on the extension of NATO membership to the Baltics, the same arguments were made uh, that are made today about the risk of, you know, Russian launching a military response to a membership action plan for Ukraine. So we've been through that debate before, actually. Regarding Turkey, which is a much more complex uh, question, I always sit back and I, I think, why is, when I think, why is Erdogan doing this? And I emphasize the word President Erdogan. It's really not Turkey. It's one individual. And the risk of using this phrase, in fairness to him, his relationship with the United States hasn't been ideal. Uh, from his point of view, he's had to endure the consequences of the U.S. invasion in Iraq and instability and the consequences and instability of that region. Uh, the refugees that were, that were driven in his country by that, by U.S. Syria policy. Uh, he associates an assassination attempt, which nearly got him, uh, to many officers that were trained in the United States. So there are many reasons uh, in, from his perspective that the relationship with the United States hasn't been ideal. 
I am not justifying his perspective. You're asking, why is he doing what he's doing? So that kind of broke, I think, his trust with the United States and pushed him onto a vector where he's trying to find this middle way between East and West, between the great powers, between Europe and the Middle East, between Russia and, and, and the United States. And that's why he continues to sustain uh, NATO's role in, uh, Turkey's role in NATO, serving as a host for NATO headquarters, contributing to NATO missions, but at the same time is dangerously flirting uh, with Putin as a way, means to keep his independence and perhaps his view as a check on the West, which he no longer trusts as much. And it's a dangerous flirtation. And this S-400 is extremely significant because he's basically not just buying a system, but he's, in, he's integrating into the core of the armed forces, the Turkish armed forces, Russian intelligence. And that's going to be taking a long time. It's going to take Turkey a long time to shake out. So that is a, not a very clear answer to, to your question, but this is an individual, a leader, uh, who's had personal challenges with, with the West, trying to find a middle way. Unfortunately, he's turned to an authoritarian bent and is flirting with dangerous uh, adversaries of ours. And my sense is it will take a generation for us to get over this. We will not be able to normalize our relationship with Turkey until we enter the post-Erdogan era. Thank you. I've, I've taken more than my allotted time, but uh, if the chairman would uh, allow the other members to comment if they'd like, that, uh, we'd appreciate that. Thank you. If it's okay to, to say a couple of words. Um, I think this is a, the key question for understanding uh, U.S. engagement in the broader region. Turkey is, of course, the key military power that's a NATO ally besides Russia. And in many ways, Russia and Turkey split the region as, sort of, as a sort of condominium, condominium of, uh, in, in the military domain. But I think the Turkey-Russia relationship is primarily about Erdogan and Putin. There's a deep personal relationship there, maybe even a friendship. Uh, certainly they projected that way and they presented that way. And I don't think that is a relationship between these two men that we're ever going to break. I think that being said, Russia has a huge amount of leverage over Turkey. Russia's positions um, in Syria could turn up another refugee wave, a migrant wave into Turkey. They're absolutely terrified of that. Um, and Russia consistently uses uh, Tourism, Russian tourists make up the largest part of the tourist industry, uh, foreign tourist industry in Turkey. And we've seen elements and, and, time, and uh, time, time and again where the Turks, or I should say Erdogan does something, and then all of a sudden Russian tourists can't go to Turkey anymore. This really hurts, and it hurts Erdogan domestically. And I think at the end of the day, this is about domestic politics. And so I think there's a desire from Erdogan to constantly balance against Putin by using the West and aggravating the, the West by pursuing these kinds of somewhat nonsensical uh, engagements and purchases of these kinds of uh, military capabilities. I think we should watch very, very closely whether the Turks will actually use the S-400s. I think they're going to remain unused and relatively dormant um, to preserve the NATO, the NATO relationship and to not ruin uh, even further the relationship with the United States. But I think Russia has a huge amount of leverage over Turkey and that personal relationship with Erdogan and Putin is not going to go anywhere. Um, while Erdogan or Putin are both in power. Senator, I, I, would, I would only add that um, I, I worked deeply with Turkey over the past 10 years or so, uh, and w the conclusion I drew with the S-400s is that uh, it, it really began with the, uh, the bargaining over the uh, sale of the Patriot missile system to, uh, to Turkey. That has been in the works for years. 
Uh, it, it began to frustrate Putin, I mean, uh, well, frustrate Erdogan uh, greatly that he wasn't getting from the United States the price and the technology transfer that he wanted. And he began to throw something new into what has been a routine, uh, although long-standing um, negotiation over the sale. He threw into that uh, the point that he has options. He wanted the United States to know that he's got other options besides the Patriot system. The first example of that was he was going to buy a Chinese system. And for about a year, there was this talk coming out of Ankara that there was going to be a Chinese system. Then he said, well, uh, I'm still not happy with where the United States is. I'm not going to buy China. I'm going to go talk to the Russians. And this time he took it further. He actually, uh, because the, the DOD was not moving on the, the various elements that he was unhappy with, with Patriot, he went ahead and bought the S-400 system. And by doing that, he bought into this relationship with Putin. Uh, and it's not a relationship that's based on love or friendship or interest. It's really based on these two autocrats using one another um, uh, to, to take forward, whether it's regional or vis-a-vis -vis the United States, to take forward their own, their own agendas, uh, working with one another on this. If you see where the Russians and the Turks are in, in Libya in terms of the problems there or in Azerbaijan, or in other uh, regional issues in the area, usually the Russians are on one side and the, Tur and the Turks on the other side. So, there, so this, this relationship is one based primarily on those two personalities and how they use one another to signal or to try to get leverage over the United States particularly. Uh, and so we've just got to break that vortex because at the end of the day, we need to return to that close relationship with Turkey. We, we do need them, and they need us as well. They don't need Russia uh, to be their, uh, their, their friend. It's the United States. And the bulk of the uh, civil service and the diplomatic service and the military, those left after the purges, I think they know that. But they're keeping their heads down, and we'll have to wait the, the uh, departure of Erdogan, I think, before we can get a, a semblance of normalcy between, this, between the United States and Turkey. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I think that's you, Chris. It's, I think it's Senator Johnson. <laughs> you want me to go? Oh, well, uh, thank you, uh, Senator Johnson. Um, thank you all for being here. You uh, all have done so much to help this committee, and in particular this subcommittee, uh, over the course of uh, the last decade. Grateful to have you both before us. I'm going to try to fit in a question for each of you. Um, uh, Mr. Townsend, wanted to talk to you about uh, Russia's um, end goals. One of them is to try to create fissures inside the EU, but another is to try to create fissures between the EU, Europe, and the United States. Um, and I think we have to have our eyes wide open uh, as to the ways in which they use both their official means of communication, um, but also their surrogates. Uh, and their propaganda channels, both inside Europe and inside the United States, to try to break us from each other. I, I think about what's happening in Romania and Bulgaria today as an example. Can you just give us um, an example or two of the ways in which Russia is trying to split the United States from Europe and uh, make sure that this committee is you know, going into some of these questions about the future of U.S.-European cooperation fully uh, cognizant of what Russia's motives are here? 
I think one of the top priorities for Moscow as they look at trying to drive a wedge is to portray uh, to the allies, particularly Central and Eastern European allies, that the United States can't be trusted. That at the end of the day, uh, they will take problems uh, such as Nord Stream 2 or uh, Kabul, uh, just those two, or, the, 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 or our politics over the past number of years. And, tr and they turn that around and they portray that in Europe and they portray that uh, to those nations that are afraid that the United States, that they thought they knew in terms of of, of, uh, of being a uh, trusted uh, ally that would be there when, when, when it counts, to cast doubt on that, to tell the Central and East Europeans that, look, you've put so much faith in the United States, look what they've done in Kabul. You can't trust the Americans. Or they might go to the French and say, you can't trust the Americans in NATO. The EU and the Europeans should establish their own military capability. They should go off on their own. NATO's time is in the past. NATO's great champion, the United States, is no longer interested in Europe. Uh, so France, you should pull together a coalition of, of, uh, of European members and, and set up a European army. And you should do, it's this kind of thing, more than anything else, that gets the, the press in Europe or gets the think tanks in Europe or those that shape opinion, politicians, to begin to feel that they need to hedge. Uh, against the United States, that they don't know where the United States is going. Therefore, we need to be doing things as Europeans to look out for that time when the United States might be distracted and doing things uh, in the Pacific uh, instead. That is one of the major tools that they use to drive that wedge, is to insert into the European mind that the United States is not what it used to be. The United States can't be trusted to come. There's got to be other alternatives. Uh, and we, Russia, have some great ideas to have a Europe without the United States that would be better than a Europe with the United States. So we need to be positioned in order to counteract that narrative, and that's why it's so egregious that we don't have ambassadors and that we have had a logjam here in Congress trying to get our diplomatic team deployed to Europe. For instance, right now, one of the um, leaders who's being held up in the Senate uh, is the Assistant Secretary for Europe, the person who would coordinate pushback on this narrative. Um, but another way that we can push back on this narrative is by funding independent uh, objective media sources. Ms. Polakova, you've done a lot of work on this topic. You uh, talk about it in your written testimony. You know, the idea that we're spending um, the same amount of money on our entire anti-propaganda budget housed at the Global Engagement Center as we do on one single littoral combat ship seems to be a gross misallocation of resources today. Can you talk a little bit about whether we are allocating enough resources um, in and around the Black Sea region in particular to try to combat against Russian narratives uh, in the ways that we support uh, objective media sources, fact checkers um, throughout the region? Thank you, Senator. And I know you're very familiar with the region and uh, have visited the region quite often, so you know some of these issues quite well. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, just a couple of thoughts there. Uh, the answer to your question as to whether we're spending enough resources commensurate with the level of the threat, I think the answer is very clear, no. And that has been the case for, unfortunately, a very long time. Um, I think we need to not think about counter disinformation, counter propaganda efforts separate from supporting independent media. These are one and the same. Um, and we have to understand that this is a long-term game. We obviously have issues around disinformation in our own country. We know this isn't easy, uh, but certainly 
the countries of the Black Sea, most notably Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, have been battling this for a long time. Um, and I think, unfortunately, what I've seen in the last couple of months, and I was in Ukraine uh, just in September, is what Jim just outlined about Russian messaging, about the lack of U.S. reliability, um, the lack of U.S. leadership, the lack of U.S. just care and involvement in the region, and the lack of our capability to act um, has been very effective. These are the, kind, the pictures from Afghanistan, the chaos uh, that ensued as part of the withdrawal uh, was all over Russian media. And again, we can, this was propaganda, but these were real photos. So I want to be clear about how well the Russians are using U.S. foreign policy to drive our Central East European allies um, away from the United States, as well as to help mobilize these conversations around strategic autonomy, which are very, very dangerous in my view, because it serves the Russian interest and the Chinese interest. So to be clear, I think the Global Engagement Center is a good initiative, but it seems like we have done that, and then we thought, that's it, we're done. Um, we solved the problem, and we certainly have not, if anything, has gone far, far worse. And we need to do a great deal more to invest in the region and to really rethink how we do democracy support, independent media support. I think our system, it's a different hearing, I think, but our system is, it feels very broken right now in terms of how we invest in some of these independent efforts in the media sphere in these countries. I thank you for that. I'm over my time. I'll submit an additional question to the record for you, Mr. Brzezinski. I want to thank you for your uh, support and advocacy for the three C's fund. Um, I know the administration is reviewing uh, its participation in that program. This is one of the mechanisms by which we build energy independence uh, throughout the region. I think it's absolutely critical. I'm arguing that the administration double down on our uh, involvement um, and uh, um, uh, appreciate your, your work on that topic. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Madam Chair. There is without doubt that uh, Russia uses its propaganda arm, its uh, media outlets, to do as much as possible to destabilize these nations. Uh, but as Ms. Polykova just uh, talked about, the reality is uh, something we need to deal with as well. Um, I just want to ask all three of you, because I, I'm assuming you're talking to uh, players in the region all the time, what is the current perception? of the U.S. I mean, set, set Russian propaganda misinformation aside, what is the perception of what the reality is in terms of American strength, American commitment? Uh, I'll start with you, Mr. Townsend. Thank you, Senator. That's an excellent question. Uh, you know, I, we do talk to them all the time. Uh, it's constant. Uh, I feel like I'm back in my old job uh, in the Pentagon. I'm, we see them so often. And I would say that um, they're nervous uh, about where we're going uh, in terms of a, of a nation. You know, the, they watch our politics as well. Um, they read the Washington Post. Uh, and so uh, they're, they, they're, there's an unease there where they don't quite know where we're going. Uh, they, they like the tone of the Biden administration. Uh, they, they like a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the Biden administration. From what I hear, they're, they're waiting for some of the detail. They're waiting for some of the programs. What will things look like? I think, uh, the, I think not having ambassadors had, has had quite an impact. And, you know, we, we've all been around Washington for many, many years, uh, and, and we, we know the issue. But I, I think this time it's a bit different. It's gone on for so long. It's adding to this, this anxiousness that they have. 
Uh, and it's hard for them to, uh, back in their capitals, to talk about the United States from their embassies here in Washington through cables and this type of thing, and to give their governments a good view of, of just where the United States is right now, where's Washington right now, if there's not an ambassador and a country team that can supplement that. So it's, a, it's definitely a problem. I, I think they're, they're, it's still early days for them as they are looking at where the United States is going. I think they, finally, just my last point, I, I, I think they, they are also uneasy that it's taken so long for them to develop a picture of where the administration is. As the team, uh, the administration's team is still coming into place, uh, the voice that they hear is, is not as unified as they're used okay, to. I'm, I'm all for appointing ambassadors, but I think, you over, I think you're, in your answer you're overlooking what is the impact of capitulation on Nord Stream 2? What's the impact of the embarrassing, I would argue, dangerous surrender in Afghanistan? Uh, what, what's, what's the uh, impact of not funding the Defense Department so that we maintain a strength where America's percentage of GDP spent on defense just continues to decline? What, what's the impact of that? I'll go to you, Ms. Polikova. Uh, unfortunately, I think the perception, especially in Europe's east, um, is that our partners and allies there can no longer rely on the United States for a consistent foreign policy. Um, I would say this is not just the last uh, months of this administration. This is a view that's been developing over time. And what our allies are looking for is consistency. You know, there were, we did a, basically a yo-yo on Nord Stream 2 in this country from the last administration to this one. It was very confusing. And we're seeing some of the effects of that now. Uh, you know, Moldova is being held hostage, basically, by the Kremlin. And so is most of Europe in terms of gas supplies. And the Russians have gotten very brazen because they know they can just roam now uh, because the deal has been made. Um, that is the perception. And I do think that uh, what happened with the AUKUS decision and how that was communicated, again, this is not about whether this is the right policy, the wrong policy, same with Afghanistan. It's about how it was perceived in the region. Uh, and again, I think what it's fueling, um, particularly in Western Europe, um, is a desire to decouple from the United States. It is a, an illusion that Europe can't do that, of course, but it's fueling that kind of perception. It's fueling that debate as we speak. Mr. Brzezinski, if you could please answer that. I, I think the Central Europeans, including the region, the Central Europeans in the Black Sea region are beginning to question uh, their relationship with the United States. Uh, they embraced Biden's uh, election. They liked his outreach to Europe. But they, as my colleagues have mentioned, have been a little bit stunned by the U.S. decision in Afghanistan, both in terms of the, the rationale for it and a concern that this was an America abandoning uh, commitments it, it had made, and particularly commitments to human rights, for example, in, in Afghanistan, commitment to security. They were upset over the lack of consultation in the execution of, 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 of that decision. That struck a blow to confidence in the United States. I think their concern, and this is something that I hear consistently in discussions with Central European colleagues, that there's a focus in Washington on China uh, that could be distracting the United States away from the challenges posed by, by Russia. That is a criticism directed both the administration and, and to Capitol Hill. Nord Stream 2, almost universally across Central Europe, was a decision that was not well appreciated. Uh, they felt it was a mistake because it's going to increase uh, particularly Western Europe's dependence on, on Russian gas. 
and they're watching very closely how the United States is going to res respond with Germany to the Nord Stream, to Russia's um, turning off the taps of, of gas to, to Europe today. On Moldova is in the crisis right now because of that, of that cutoff. Central Europeans are waiting to see what the United States and Germany are going to do to respond to that, as was promised under the NS2 agreement between Washington and, and Berlin. So they're all watching very closely for the release of upcoming policy reviews from, from the administration, particularly the Global Force Posture Review, the Russia Review, and probably, of course, also whenever there will be the, 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 the rollout of a Black Sea security strategy. It's not a crisis, but there's growing concern. So again, I'm all for getting ambassadors in place, but ambassadors won't have enough lipstick to put in all those pigs. Uh, Madam Chair. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, Madam Chair. Thank all of you for your, your testimony. Uh, Dr. Polyakova, you say in your written statement uh, that, quote, Black Sea states as a whole must do more to improve resilience of institutions, that unstable democratic institutions and processes within these states expose the region to the Kremlin's influence operations in the informational cyber demands, and that every Black Sea state can and should do more on democratic reforms, anti-corruption, and judicial independence. Can you briefly describe where you think the biggest hot spots are in this issue? I agree with your assessment that to the extent you have weaker institutions, you have countries that are more vulnerable uh, to pressure from uh, the Kremlin. Where do you see the biggest hot spots to be right now? Thank you for that question, Senator. It's such a critical uh, issue for us to be discussing as we think about a longer-term strategy, not a short-term strategy. Uh, the hotspots, to my mind, are exactly in the countries that are not part of NATO and they're not part of the EU. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, EU integration, NATO integration, have mobilized reforms and have forced countries that would have reformed much, much slower, perhaps not at all, um, to really establish proper democratic institutions, a independent judiciary, uh, checks and balances, and support independent media, uh, and have a proper you know, parliamentary uh, debate and that can curb and put a check on executive power. In countries like Ukraine, while certainly Ukraine, um, in terms of reforms, has got, done a great deal, and we have to be very patient, uh, because these countries are new democracies, and Ukraine, of course, um, has only, you could say, broken free of the yoke of Russia in just 2014, um, in terms of the government uh, being not under the thumb of, of the Kremlin anymore. Uh, but still, progress has been slow, but I think our strategy to tie financial support, not military support, but financial support and loans through the IMF and other international institutions to make that conditional of very specific reforms in judiciary is working, but we need to keep up that pressure, and we need to be very explicit about that conditionality. I think Moldova today is a bright spot, and we, I know it's a small country, and it's hard to focus on small countries, but we just had a democratic election there, and we have a real anti-corruption activist, uh, President Sa uh, Maya Sandu, in charge. And we have to support Moldova and make sure it remains a bright spot. Georgia, unfortunately, I think has seen some setbacks um, in, in recent months on, on democracy. But again, to my mind, we're not in a place where we can abandon any ally or any democracy at this point. We have to help them succeed. We have to help them reform. Uh, if I had to choose one specific area for all of these countries, it's the judiciary. This is the key. It is also often the, the top line of attack uh, when it comes to anti-democratic uh, efforts uh, to undermine independence and undermine proper democratic process. 
I appreciate that. I, I do want to press you a little bit on the um, statement that it's our non-NATO allies that are particularly weak when it comes to mm. these institutions. Um, I think we we see um, significant erosion of many of these democratic institutions and independent judiciary in, in certain NATO countries as well. Uh, let me ask you about Turkey. As you know, uh, President Erdogan just uh, threatened to declare uh, the U.S. ambassador and others persona non grata because they sent a letter uh, asking for the release of Osman Kavala, uh, who somebody, as you know, that the you know the the court of uh, the Council of Justice uh, in in Europe is found unjustly detained. Uh, he's also he Erdogan is also talking about dismantling one of the largest uh, political parties in Turkey, uh, the HDP. Um, I'd be interested in how you and other panelists sort of judge this this clear trend uh, in Turkey under President Erdogan away from independent democratic uh, institutions threatening to lock up uh, and and uh, render illegal uh, these political parties. Thank you, Senator. I can start and then ask my colleagues to chime in on this very complex question of, of Turkey, which we knew we'd be talking about extensively during this hearing. And you're absolutely right. Uh, the democratic uh, recession is not just a problem in the Black Sea. We see that in uh, EU member states and NATO member states, unfortunately. Uh, and we have to think about what tools do we have, uh, carrots and sticks, to push these countries in the right direction. I think this is a huge question for this administration and for the United States more broadly. But in Turkey specifically, certainly the trends we've seen under uh, President Erdogan have been uh, beyond deeply concerning. Uh, and it's hard to see a reversal in Turkey, certainly not under Erdogan, uh, but hopefully after Erdogan's time is up, which we don't know when that will be. But I do think that there is, um, because of the economic situation, a growing discontent among the population, there's a growing discontent among his supporters. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of the actions that we see Erdogan take, including this threat uh, to expel the U.S. ambassador, the U.S. ambassador and others, um, are much more about domestic populist politics than they are about reality. But I think the, the reality is also that Erdogan doesn't seem to care as much about the international community's response in some of these cases. Though I will say he did walk back that expulsion threat after some international pressure um, in that regard. So I think that also tells us that when we work with allies and we coordinate our efforts, they work. Uh, Senator, I, I would, uh, I, I stand with my colleague in everything that she said, and I would just add that um, it's gonna take great patience uh, from the United States so that we don't make things worse in terms of of uh, uh, picking fights with him or rising to the bait, if you will, with Erdogan. He's very good at that. He's good at uh, uh, frustrating us and putting us in a position where we don't even want to have to deal with him. I think that will make things worse. There will come a time when he's going to leave the scene. He is vulnerable. I think politically the next few years will probably show that. And I think we need to be patient and keep a strong relationship with with that civil service, with the diplomatic service, with the Turkish military, which is used to be, of course, very close to the U.S. military. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they, were, they went through a purge. Uh, so uh, they're going to have to be rebuilt in, in their own way after Erdogan leaves to, to come back to 
have that relationship with us the way it was in the past. But I think we have to be patient and not play into his hands uh, and, and be a constant presence and try to deal with the irritants as best we can and wait him out because I don't see us having a changed uh, relationship to something that works better for us until he leaves the scene. But we just gotta, gotta help, help that by being patient and keeping things intact with that relationship uh, with, with the broader Turkish government until he leaves. Thank you, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Um, thank you very much. Just to, to follow up on that a little bit, because I can't remember which one of you said we needed to help President Erdogan find an out for his decision to bring in the S-400 and to um, compromise the F-35 program. Having talked to a number of Turkish officials, it's not at all clear to me that, that they want that out. And so I guess I'm a little, I'm a little curious about what you think the, the options might be to um, engage Turkey in those areas and whether in fact, I mean, the, the definite sense I had was that um, they really didn't think the United States was gonna follow through on um, our concerns about their using the S-400 and then withdrawing um, or kicking Turkey out, I guess is the best way to put it, from the F-35 program. So um, given that, it's not clear to me that there's a lot we can do in those areas. So I don't know who would like to take that. Well, I don't, well, uh, Senator, I, I said that in my testimony, so I guess it's up to me to defend it. Uh, you know, I, so much of this, uh, were, some of the, so much of this problem was based on miscalculation on both sides. It was, it was something caught up, again, in the negotiations over the Patriot missile system. Uh, and it just got out of control. And so the reason I said that we need to help help get Erdogan out of the corner with, within which he's painted himself is that he, he went for the S-400 not because he wanted it or the Turkish military wanted it. It was a message to the United States that, look, I don't need the Patriot. I can buy the S-400 too. Um, the Patriot missile system is something that, in fact, the military does want, uh, and so does much of the... Turkish government, the Patriot has been what's been deployed for years to Turkey when they've come under pressure from Syria or from Iraq or other kinds of crises in the Middle East in the past. It's been NATO uh, uh, deploying missile defense to Turkey and, of course, the U.S. Patriot system. And so they want the Patriot system. They do want that. They particularly want the F-35. The U.S. has had for decades now a very deep relationship between Turkish aerospace uh, and the U.S. aerospace and U.S. aircraft, particularly the F-16. Uh, and uh, I've talked to the Turkish uh, uh, military over the past couple of months, and they told me very quietly they still want to keep going with the American platforms uh, because so much of their industry as well as their logistics and infrastructure is based around that F-16. So if the question becomes, well, how can we deal with this S-400 that you already own uh, and make sure it doesn't become a problem if you are then led into the F-35 program. And I'll give you a suggestion. Uh, one was that uh, uh, it, it almost could be something along the lines of taking that S-400 and, and put it, keeping it in its crates instead of deploying it and putting it in a warehouse locked up 
where it's then inspected once a year to make sure that it doesn't come out and there's not Russian technicians and it's not, as uh, uh, Mr. Brzezinski pointed out, it's not integrated into the Turkish air defense system, but it's there as a white elephant uh, and that we can be assured of that. Uh, and if the Air Force feels confident that, uh, yeah, that, that it's, it's not going to be a threat to the F-35, then I think we should, we should put them in back into the F-35 program. You know, they make, they were supposed to make parts for the F-35. So, well, so I they, think. in fact, they did. Excuse me? In fact, they did make parts for the F-35. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I think if we can come up with a measure uh, to deal with that S-400, and come up with a way also to make the uh, Patriot air, air defense uh, purchased by the Turks. If, it, if we get halfway to what they, what they want, which is a whole other story, they want a lower price, they want to be able to manufacture parts of it. And we went into quite a bit of negotiations between Raytheon and the Turks on how to do that. If we can, if we can at least take care of that Patriot purchase, neutralize the S-400, and bring them back into the F-35, I think that they're all connected. And if we can come up with a way to do that, that would go a long way to bringing, at least on the military and the civil service side in, the, in Ankara, get us back into a place where we, where we used to be. But until we can come up with something like that, we're going to be at a standoff. Um, and I have no doubt about that. And what I'm questioning is Turkey's real interest, either on the part of President Erdogan and the people who are in charge, in making those changes that they would need to make in order to make that happen. And based on conversations that I've had, it's not clear to me that, in fact, they want to do that. I, I want to move to NATO expansion, though, because um, I guess, Dr. Polykova, this is probably for you. I, I certainly support Georgia and Ukraine's aspirations for MAP for NATO. I, I think it would be um, very helpful. Obviously, they have some reforms that they need to make in order to be able to do that. But I, I worry if we, <clears throat> if we continue to hold that out and we're not able to make that happen, because obviously there are a number of NATO countries who seem to have reservations about that, that that undermines our efforts in both of those countries. Can you or any of you talk about what options we might have, and, and should we think about a different construct for NATO that might provide opportunities for countries like Ukraine and Georgia that really want to be members or be on a trajectory for membership and yet um, still have challenges within their own countries? Well, th thank you so much, Senator. It's an important question, and I'm sure my colleagues uh, will have a lot to, to say about that. Um, like you, I also believe that uh, MAP for Georgia and Ukraine is the right path forward. Um, unfortunately, I think this conversation about U Ukraine's security and also Georgian security has become too embroiled and too focused on MAP. And I think the reality is that given what you just described in terms of some NATO member states not supporting that process, um, and the reality that Ukraine and I think Ukrainians realize that they're far away from NATO membership, uh, a long ways away because of their own reforms in defense and military sector, um, and of course questions about Russian uh, occupation of Crimea and the continued uh, low, uh, uh, low conflict, uh, low level conflict in the Donbas. That being said, I think there's a lot we can do that is below map um, to build a closer partnership with Ukraine and Georgia. And we're already doing some of that. 
Uh, one uh, idea that uh, I elaborated in my written testimony as well is, is of course, uh, the joint exercises that we've been doing, such as Rapid Trident and Seabreeze, which you also mentioned, are incredibly important. Uh, we should do many more of those. Um, I don't think there's any substitute for uh, U.S. operations in concert with our partners to demonstrate U.S. support for the Black Sea, but also for Ukraine and Georgia and also Moldova uh, more specifically. Um, I think there's an opportunity to focus on establishing centers of excellence, perhaps EU-NATO joint centers of excellence. We have a model for that in other countries, um, in Georgia, in Ukraine, um, as well as um, focusing on how uh, these countries can become sort of a network for responding to Russian hybrid threats, because they are often the first target uh, of Russian cyber attacks and disinformation attacks, and they can serve as a, as a sort of early warning system. We have a network in place. Um, I think there's a lot more that we can do on the military side, um, certainly on the, and in the NDAA, not cutting that support for Ukraine, most notably that has been so effective, and continuing our training exercises uh, with both countries, Georgia and Ukraine, that we've been doing for years. That has professionalized the Ukrainian <coughs> military in a significant way. Um, and that's been very obvious in terms of their ability to defend themselves as well. So there's, that's the beginning of a list as to what else we can do that will take us a little bit below the discussion around MAP. Thank you. Did you want to add something, Mr. Brzezinski? Yes, Senator Shaheen. <coughs> you know, when I think about Ukraine and Georgia and MAP and their aspirations to become full members of the transatlantic community, I just have to come to the conclusion that the current approach is not working. I mean, Russia has invaded Ukraine, continues to occupy Ukrainian territory. It's invaded Georgia, continues to occupy Georgian territory. You, you saw firsthand the borderization that's going on, which is continued territorial aggression. We saw a massive buildup um, in, in the Black Sea uh, just this last spring, a buildup that has not withdrawn. That offensive posture is still there. Russia is more poised to do more damage against those two countries and against the region than before. So NATO's open door policy uh, is really, the open door phrase has become a destabilizing bromide. It communicates a lack of commitment, a lack of will to really respond affirmatively to the transatlantic aspirations of these countries. Countries which, by the way, to demonstrate that determination, have sent their troops into harm's way under, under the NATO flag. So we do need to change th this approach to membership, I think, as soon as we can. And in addition to putting them on a map or another form of clear roadmap to membership, we should be upgrading the alliance's engagement with that country. Uh, we should have a larger institutional presence, perhaps a kind of a training element like we have in, in, in Georgia. We should be expanding and increasing the number of exercises we do, not just with Ukraine, but in Ukraine. All of that complicates Russian planning. We ought to be turning over, sharing, uh, providing more lethal military assistance to Ukraine and Georgia. I mean, they need to not only have javelins, but the ability to deploy their javelins to the front lines, which they're not allowed to do today. They need to have better radars against, uh, for counter battery. They need better drones so they can better situational awareness. They need better air defense systems. These are things that would help ensure that Russia doesn't make a move against Ukraine or Georgia as we begin the process of integrating them. And I think it would be very interesting to look at Ukraine today, because I was a volunteer in Ukraine in 1993, and it is night and day 
between Ukraine of then and today in terms of rule of law, democratic um, processes and, and, and procedures and, and governance. They have come a remarkable way and they've done it in the face of Russian aggression, which has been trying to trip up their economic reforms, trip up their political reforms. It would be interesting to compare Ukraine today to the nations at, and their states back in the 2004 uh, round of NATO enlargement. And I would bet you you'd find Ukraine's ahead of a number of those countries who entered in 2004. Well, thank you very much. You make a very good point. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Senator Barrasso. Try and go vote again. The train seemed to be working, so hopefully it will be quicker. And uh, turn it over to Senator Johnson. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Madam President, uh, Madam, Pre uh, Madam Chairman. I just as you as you go to vote, I was just thinking about our meeting with Jen Stoltenberg not too long ago, uh, just in the last month, uh, about NATO showing additional strength and unity. Uh, and in uh, my visit to Ukraine last month, having a chance to visit with uh, President Zelensky, and to your question, Madam uh, Chairman, about the efforts with, uh, with NATO, that was one of the main issues they wanted to talk about, the NATO expansion and the ability of, uh, of Ukraine to find a way uh, to enter and show solidarity and union and uh, benefit as well as contribute. Uh, the question, I'm going to run through this and let each of the three of you re respond. So when I think about the very successful Baltic uh, air policing mission to safeguard the integrity of the NATO alliance members' uh, airspace that was created by NATO, that mission, I think, could serve as a model to efforts to maintain a robust NATO presence uh, in the Black Sea. You just mentioned the issues of more involvement uh, in connection of not, ju of not just assistance, but actually people. Uh, so can I just ask your views on NATO establishing, say, a Black Sea Maritime Patrol mission? What are some of the challenges and the opportunities of a regular and rotational maritime presence um, by NATO in the Black Sea? And do NATO members have the capacity uh, and a commitment to create this type of mission? And I'd just be interested in the three of your comments. Thank you, Senator. I, uh, I, I tried to do that when I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Uh, we... Uh, this back in 2016, we tried to, and, and NATO was working on developing a, uh, a, a NATO naval presence uh, in the Black Sea, and uh, it was blocked by Turkey. Uh, and uh, so, so that's the problem. So we have to figure out. We still need to do that. So how do we do this in a way that it won't? We won't find ourselves blocked. And uh, what I suggested in my testimony, and I've heard others talk about this as well, is not have it be a NATO mission, but have it be a, a national mission where allies, again, not subject to a NATO vote, where allies uh, develop a rotational deployment uh, similar to uh, air policing, if you will, uh, where they would go for two weeks uh, to patrol the Black Sea and then return out the Bosphorus and then another one goes in. And so you've got allies doing this and flying the flag, partners too. Uh, and I think that's an important uh, demonstration of NATO unity as well. While it won't be a NATO uh, initiative, it will be made up of NATO nations uh, that are going in there and doing two-week patrols and then coming out, each taking their turn. If I could ask Senator Barroso, you yes, know, please. when I think of moving forward with our NATO presence in that region, I would say one, let's put an intelligence fusion cell there so it could look at the full spectrum of challenges, informational, cyber, military, economic. 
we have such a cell in, in, uh, in Naples today looking at Africa and the Middle East, we should have one in, in the Black Sea. Uh, in addition to expanding our maritime naval exercises and operations in, 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 in the Black Sea, we ought to really upgrade what they call NATO's joint uh, tailored force presence, which right now is just a headquarters element. In the Baltic, we have an enhanced forward presence, which is four NATO battalions in Poland and three Baltic states. We, more, we need more than just a headquarters element in, in the Black Sea region. We need a, a, a headquarters element that's, that's also got actually land battalions, combat battalions there, coastal batteries, and a more robust naval presence. And I would reinforce that with the U.S. Brigade Combat Team in Romania and Bulgaria. That is the kind of presence that we need. If we can't do that because Turkey blocks us, these are initiatives we could do with coalitions of the willing in the alliance. And sometimes that's the, the thing you do to get the alliance into that gear. Uh, Dr. Polyakova. Just, just a small add to, to my colleagues, um, just to second the idea of establishing an operational hub, an intelligence hub, whatever we want to call it, to respond to full-spectrum uh, warfare and to assess full-spectrum warfare across the Black Sea. Um, I think this is exactly something we have to do. We have to do it, and I don't think it would take a huge amount of resources. Um, and as all of us seem to agree, Romania seems to be the most natural place to, to do so, given the the level of, Ukraine, of Romania's engagement in the region and its uh, investment. And just very, very quickly on the Taylor Forward Presence, the TFP, um, it's just not enough at the end of the day. And we have to rethink it because it hasn't even been implemented to at that lower level that's below the enhanced forward presence that we have um, in, in the broader Central Eastern European region. Yeah, it does seem like most of the activity we have is coming out of Signorella in Sicily uh, to do the observational work uh, with the NATO headquarters there as well as U.S. base. Yeah, okay. all right. I, I would agree with that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Hey, Senator Barrasso, you, you kind of stole my thunder because I wanted to actually, actually ask about those same Baltic State air patrols, but I'll take it from a slightly different uh, position. When I, when I first heard of that and – I never got the specific figures, but it sounded to me like the Baltic states, by and large, were paying for it. Maybe it was a dollar-for-dollar dollar type of a situation, but to me, that was a complete win-win situation. They wanted a U.S. or NATO presence there. Uh, obviously, every, every nation's strapped for, for uh, financing. Uh, every nation's talking about, you know, let's do nation-building at home. Uh, so here you had a win-win situation, and I would have just asked the same thing. Why not replicate that? Uh, Senator Sheen and I just met with the Romanian ambassador, and in my briefing we heard something about 1,100 troops kind of on a rotational basis, and as every nation in that region just about always asks us, we want more U.S. presence. It provides, I guess call it a tripwire, but it provides security. It makes a lot of sense. And from my standpoint, I think it's probably worth the U.S. investment just from a, you know, again, where we can provide stability, it's just so much cheaper to keep a nation or a region stable as opposed to having to deal with a big mess. So if that's not possible, uh, what possibilities are there? I mean, what are opportunities are there to have these countries, whether NATO allies or not, basically fund the presence of whatever military force uh, they can make the arrangement for? I'll start with Mr. Townsend. Thank you, Senator. Um, I was very much involved in that 
Baltic and also in the Black Sea arrangement with these nations to pick up a lot of the tab in terms of logistics uh, and support for U.S. forces when they deploy there. And I'll say that in uh, Romania, we are seeing quite a bit of investment by the Romanian government in their MK base, as well as some training areas also, so that they are building the infrastructure, the barracks, they're lengthening runways, they're doing things. Um, and we're doing the same through the European Reassurance uh, or European Deterrence Initiative that, uh, that we early on began to fund some of those upgrades that the Romanians have now taken over for us. So we are doing that, but I think there's more that we can do. Uh, and particularly having um, partners and allies there pick up some of those costs. I know in uh, Bulgaria, for instance, there's a big exercise area that we built there, Novoselo, uh, and the Bulgarians are paying for a lot of the logistics and support for that. But I do believe we can do more. Um, both uh, all my colleagues and I have talked about ways that we can have NATO uh, put in a command structure there and have a headquarters. Uh, where we can have a NATO battle group there or an armored uh, brigade combat team, as Ian has pointed out. Um, and I think we've established the pattern there now and the precedent where if we do that, if we do deploy the forces, like in the Baltics, these uh, the Black Sea nations can pay for the training areas uh, to instrument uh, those, to build barracks, to build those uh, logistic structures, and then to provide the support for them. Um, uh, so that as we deploy there, uh, a lot of that burden is carried by the nation itself. So, so the pieces are there already. What we need to do is to stitch them together in a bigger way than we've done in the past, along the way we've, we've talked about this, and then make it part of a strategy. And I hope that as we do the Global Posture Review, maybe some of that will be reflected in how the Pentagon is looking at increasing force posture there from the United States and the role that the nations will play, will play in picking up some of the bill. We put a lot of time and effort into cajoling, cajoling our NATO partners to spend 2%. Uh, and I think we focus so much on the amount that we don't focus enough on how, how it is spent. You know, how much, not how it's spent. You know, to me, and I, I guess the question is, do we have, are there ongoing, or have there been discussions in the past? You know, literally, okay, great, you're putting out the facilities, but we're still having to pay for the troops. I mean, literally, have these nations pay for the full deployment as part, as part of their NATO commitment, if they're a NATO country, if not, just as a, you know, a, a f somebody who wants some security assurances. I mean, do we have those discussions, or is it always, well, if we've got troops in this, we're going to pay the full price? You know, who, who, you know, Mr. Brzezinski. Senator Johnson, I think it would be hard for a country like Estonia to pay the full cost of allied presence in, in their territory. Um, I will say that they really are making an effort to spend as much as they can to make their, their territories as attractive to U.S. and allied uh, forces as possible. I mean, I look at Lithuania, they're spending a lot of money uh, creating facilities that are basically serving as the, as the residences and, and bases for a, a, a U.S. deployment there. Uh, Jim was pointing out that the, the Romanians are spending about a billion dollars to upgrade uh, their MK Air, Air Force base, so it'll be a more attractive and more effective uh, base for U.S. and NATO operations. I think the folks that really need to be squeezed are really the West European allies. And I'm always struck by the fact the United States has, what's probably six, seven battalion equivalent deployments in, in Poland. And our West European allies really contributing no more than company-level detachments to the NATO uh, battalions in, in the Baltics and Poland. 
that is not an appropriate balance of responsibility. So I'm hoping as part of this global posture review, I'm hoping as part of this Black Sea security strategy that they're developing, that a big emphasis will be putting a bit more pressure on the Germans, on the French, on the UK and the Norwegians and the Italians to put some of their posture out onto NATO's eastern frontier, which is the line of confrontation. So I'm not on armed services, so I really don't know what, what does it cost to maintain a brigade for a year. Uh, Mr. Townsend, coming from the Defense Department, do you have an estimate of that cost? Sir, I don't have that number off the, off the top of my head, but I, but I think your point, though, is well taken in terms of talking about how this 2% is being spent and broadening that definition to include paying for a battalion if it comes in and if they're able to. I mean, I think, I think what Ian is saying is important in terms of what they're able to do. We have to be more creative in finding things that they can do. Um, you know, some nations uh, might not have the ready cash, but they can contribute in kind um, and so when we provide a, a battalion, um, uh, we might have to pick up the cost of that deployment and the care and feeding of those forces, but the host country can pick up the other things, the utilities, uh, the transportation. There's other things that they can do uh, that are in kind and don't necessarily call for a cash layout that a poor or smaller country might not be able to do. It's thinking creatively. So um, I get a sense that we just do not explore those possibilities robustly. Is that, is that an accurate statement? I think that's an accurate statement, Senator. Uh, so, Ms. Polikovi, in your uh, testimony, you talked about uh, how Turkey and Russia are at odds in terms of Black Sea. Can, can you uh, give us greater detail on that? Uh, just, just very briefly, it's certainly uh, a big historical uh, uh, issue between Turkey and, and Russia, and it really defines the relationship. Um, the, the Montreux Convention, uh, of course, allows Turkey uh, control over the Bosphorus Straits, but Turkey also has seen Russia's uh, occupation invasion of Crimea as Russian overreach in the region. Um, and they constantly see the other allies um, and the other potential partners as a tool for balancing against Russia. Turkey and Russia are the biggest military powers um, in the Black Sea, and both are trying to use uh, the other countries to balance against the other. Uh, again, as, uh, as, as we know, uh, Turkey also fears uh, the leverage and pressure points that Russia wields over it uh, when it comes to economic issues and Turkish exports to Russia, uh, Russian tourism uh, to Turkey as well, the potential influx of migrants from the Syria conflict, which the Russians can control. And of course, we can't forget the fact that Crimea had and continues to have a uh, Muslim Tatar population that has been deeply repressed, and there is a Tatar minority in Turkey as well. Um, and this has been a huge point of con con uh, conflict between the two countries uh, because of Russia's takeover of Crimea. So these are some of the issues that we see emerge in the, in the Turkish-Russian relationship in the Black Sea. So why in the world would Turkey block NATO air maritime patrols in the Black Sea? I mean, to me that makes, I mean, they're just being surly, just being difficult. Uh, I think Jim can, can probably answer that. What's been interesting is that um, this idea in, in Ankara, and it's been there a long time, which is the, the Black Sea is their preserve. Mm -hmm. And so as, uh, as allies, the United States included, come up with ideas and go to Ankara and say, what we'd like to do is uh, these three initiatives, it doesn't even have to be a NATO initiative, it could be a coalition. They, 
that the Turks are uncomfortable with having a lot of, of other nations in its backyard, in the Black Sea area. It's surprising, and I, um, I, I, it's just, it's a, Turkish, it's a Turkish view out of Ankara that this is their sphere of influence, if you will, and they would rather... But let's face it, Russia rules it. It, Russia absolutely does. Uh, and uh, so, so they, they, they refuse to allow a counter to Russian rule of the Black Sea, basically, saying, you know, pretending they control it when Russia really does and they won't cooperate with NATO to at least provide a counter to that. I think, I think Erdogan sees more payoff by cultivating this relationship with, with Putin uh, than by doing something at a lower level concerning the balance of power uh, there in the Black Sea. It's a, it's a, he's, he, Erdogan, in a sense, is riding the tiger. He is making these uh, deals with the devil because he sees other things that he's getting from this relationship with Putin politically. Uh, and so he's willing to make these deals in order to, uh, to curry favor, even though the, the cost is his relationships with the United States and with, with NATO. Most unfortunate, uh, Madam Chair. Well, thank you. I, I know we're coming to an end of the hearing, but I wanted to follow up a little bit on Senator Johnson's question because I think it was you, Dr. Polyakova, who talked about um, the Turkey being at odds with Russia on the Black Sea was an opportunity for the U.S., and you may have addressed this while I was gone, but um, what kinds of initiatives do you think that lends itself to? Well, I will caveat this to say I'm definitely not an expert on Turkey, but I think a lot of the actions and activities and that we're questioning here in the United States about S-400 and others and the blocking of the NATO initiative in the region, I think that really stems from, first and foremost, Erdogan as a person and how he sees his own security domestically. There is, I think, a perception uh, among those in the, in the elite that are close to him and probably um, uh, there's a perception that he holds as well, uh, that if there's another democratic uprising, there's another coup attempt, someone has to come to his rescue, and that's going to be the Kremlin. Um, while we don't have any direct evidence for this, there's a lot of suspicion and, and talk that there was sort of a gentleman's agreement made, um, that that would be the case um, from Moscow uh, to support in various ways, uh, whether it be through paramilitary groups and other ways, uh, Erdogan if his position is ever challenged um, in his own country. Um, again, I think this is something to be discussed probably in a different set of hearings um, than this one. Um, I think in terms of opportunities for the United States, uh, I agree that having a greater NATO presence um, in the Black Sea has always irked Turkey, and we haven't seen them uh, support that. If anything, they've blocked it, as Jim has uh, correctly outlined. But I think we have to start from an understanding of what would the Turks accept. And I think at the end of the day, if they are engaged um, in, let's say, a conversation as to what a NATO intelligence hub, for example, in Romania would look like, what it would do. In some ways, it could benefit um, the, the, the Turkish interest for not constantly being the, the target of Russian attack um, when it comes to something Erdogan does that the Russians don't like. Um, it would take some liability off of Erdogan, off of Turkey, uh, to be able to disperse the liability across, across the other states. But I think we're far away from really knowing, and again, I think this is something that we need to think through the global posture review or the broader Black Sea strategy. Uh, what are the specific areas, whether it be in the hybrid domain, the conventional domain, the maritime domain, that each partner in the region can realistically contribute to broader security and to have an agreement on that? And I think we'll find that as long as Turkey's interests are 
part of the process that they'll likely be much more, um, uh, well, much more likely uh, to, to be able to come to the table there. But again, it's about engagement. But I, I think right now, uh, as we've seen from Erdogan, um, at the public level, uh, there's very little space but I think there's a huge amount of space at the working level. But again, I think Jim, who's worked uh, with our Turkish colleagues and friends directly, has spoken to that already. Hmm. If I could add, I would just say, you know, there are a lot of things NATO could do uh, in the Black Sea region that Turkey's blocking. And my solution to that is, okay, if Turkey will block that NATO initiative, why can't the United States pull together a coalition of the willing and do it, quote, unquote, outside of NATO? And once that institution is stood up, I can assure you the Turks will want to be part of it. And that's when you have a discussion with them about transferring it over to a, under a NATO flag. Sometimes that's the way you have to, you have to work with some of these region, regional differences. They'll block you in NATO, do it on your own, with a coalition of willing, stand it up, prove its value, and next thing you know, you'll have a country like Turkey knocking on the door and saying, how can I be part of it? And that's how all of a sudden it becomes a NATO organization or entity. Um, my final question is about Moldova, given the, the election and the potential for Moldova to move increasingly towards the West, except that Russia's challenging their energy supply. What should we be doing to address that? Is that something that we should be talking to Europe about responding to? Should we be looking at other alternatives? Senator, if I, I could suggest right now is a moment where your question is extremely appropriate and timely. Moldova's going through an energy crisis right now. It's an energy crisis that was fabricated by Putin's intentional turnoff of the, of, of the gas spigot. And uh, right now is a time for the West to stand up and divert some of its energy supplies to, to Ukraine. And I'm really glad to see that I think the Poles are about to sell or have sold a million, um, uh, um, whatever the metric is, uh, BT, whatever, BTUs. Of, of BTUs. Uh, to Moldova to re relieve that pressure. Uh, this is something that we should be swinging in behind. Uh, we should be encouraging the EU to swing in behind because this is a clear example where Putin is using energy as a weapon. Uh, and if we want to kind of go lock in Moldova's transatlantic turn or shift, uh, this is the time to do it through such action in response to this energy aggression by Putin. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It should send a real warning signal to Germany on Nord Stream, Nord Stream 2 as well. Um. Just, just to add, if I may, very, very briefly on that, you're absolutely right that we have to work with our European allies on the energy crisis in Moldova because it's not just about Moldova, it's about the broader energy crisis that is looming over Europe. Um, and certainly the Kremlin is driving that in a significant way. I was happy to see that there are agreements now being reached as Moldova continues to negotiate its gas uh, contract with uh, the Russian energy uh, state uh, giant Gazprom uh, to, for reverse flows um, through other European countries. And that's a model, of course, that we used in Ukraine uh, to get them off direct uh, imports of gas from Russia. Uh, but the reality is that um, I think this is something where Europe needs to step up. You know, we can't, as the United States, always step in <laughs> uh, to solve these regional issues. And it's a huge problem. And I hope it'll be a wake-up call. I really do to the rest of Western Europeans as you know, Russia continues to pressure European policymakers to turn on the Nord Stream 2 spigot uh, or they're continuing to hold out uh, more gas imports to Europe 
or gas exports to Europe as Europe faces a huge energy crisis across the border um, or across uh, the season in, during the winter. Uh, but I absolutely think this is something that Europe needs to lean in on. And I think our role as the United States should be to make that very clear why this is important and why it should be something that the EU takes up and speaks very uh, publicly about um, going forward. What makes this particularly critical now, uh, and your question timely, is that this is, uh, this is the Russians testing us. This is the first test of what could happen this winter. And if we don't come in hard on this and united, U.S. and Europe, uh, including the European Union, if we don't do that, then we're going to see a lot of this in the winter to come. Uh, and so I, I hope we, uh, we tackle it that way. From what I can tell, the EU is taking this seriously, uh, but, but it's going to call for some very clear-eyed and tough messages to Moscow in this very first test. And if we fail this first test, it's going to be a very cold winter. If, if, I, if I could add, this is the first test of the U.S.-German MOU on Nord Stream 2. And I'm watching very carefully to see how the United States and Germany are going to respond to this crisis in Moldova under this agreement. Because that agreement specifically said that they would stand up together and take action, punitive action, if Russia uses energy as a, as a geopolitical weapon. And we're seeing that right now. And I'm unfortunately not seeing much evidence of that MOU being activated. Wow. A very important point. Thank you all very much. Did you have yeah, anything? I'd like to follow up on this, because this, this has always puzzled me. I, I've seen the pipeline maps. Uh, I, I haven't traced them all through, figure exactly what the, the exact supply situation is. You know, I certainly understand opening up the Nord Stream 2 uh, makes Ukraine and anybody supplied through those Ukrainian pipelines vulnerable to Russian extortion. But at the same time, you're opening up a new supply line, and, and to a certain extent, that, that it reduces Russia's uh, ability to I mean, you got more supply, okay? So can somebody explain to me exactly how they are able to extort so many different countries? I mean, is it strictly the pipeline through Ukraine and, and you know, which countries that pipeline is? is uh, I mean, in other words, how do they shut off uh, Moldova? Is that pipeline coming through under the Black Sea or what? Did you understand the question? Well, I don't, what I understand the situation is, is that the Gazprom's storage facilities in, in Europe in Central Europe and Western Europe have been allowed to go down to levels that are altering now the market price for gas. And they have the capacity to fill those tanks up and therefore all of a sudden push the, the price back down. They are consciously not doing that. And every analyst I read says Russia has the production capacity to do that, which leads me and many others to conclude that this is a geopolitical move in response to Nord Stream 2 and is an attempt to kind of force European, Central European, and West European um, gas buyers back into long-term contracts that Russia wants and that we've tried to been pushing. But, but, there are other, but there are other sources of gas and oil. Or, or is Russia that dominant? They're that dominant because a gas pipeline is just much easier and can carry that much more capacity than LNG tankers that come from the United States, from Qatar, or yeah, Australia for that matter. If I may, we're very far away from being able to have uh, for example, U.S. LNG exports fill a significant part of European energy demands. Russia is the main exporter of energy to Europe, broadly speaking, still, and it but, dominates. Then, how, how does I mean? So Russia always has had that capability. How, how does adding Nord Stream really increase their uh, ability to do this? Well, sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, this, that is the crux of the issue because, of course, we're talking about Nord Stream 2, but it's already a Nord Stream 1, which Nord Stream 2 just mirrors the path of Nord Stream 1. Um, and honestly, if we look at all every single assessment, the Nord Stream 2 project is completely uh, irrelevant economically because the most direct route to deliver Russian gas to Europe is through Ukraine, the existing pipeline in Ukraine, which can deliver as much demand um, as Europe needs. And that's why Nord Stream 2 has been this massive geopolitical project because it avoids the most direct route. So it gives Russia capability to now deliver Europe's full energy needs in the gas sector without ever passing through Ukraine as soon as Nord Stream 2 comes online fully. There have been many, many discussions of other potential pipeline projects that could diversify reserves that would not pass um, through these countries. There's um, uh, the Trans-Caspian Trans pipeline that would actually develop some of the potential gas reserves um, uh, in Turkmenistan and deliver it to Turkey and then to Europe. Uh, but this project has not been taken has not gone off the ground. There's a lot of problems with it. These pipelines take a very long time to build. And I think, unfortunately, the reality today, and for, probably for the foreseeable future, um, is that this is exactly what Russia is going to be doing uh, in Europe, against Moldova, um, against Ukraine, and every single European country. But again, so I'm, I definitely see how Nord Stream 2 puts at risk Ukraine and anybody's service through that Ukrainian pipeline. But other than that, I don't see how it increases their ability. I mean, they're kind of slitting their own throat long term because the less reliable supplier they are, the more people are going to be incentivized to set up those LNG pipelines and terminals, that type of thing as well. So anyway, it's, it still remains confusing to me. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Senator Johnson. Thank you to each of our witnesses today. Sorry about the votes and the um, sort of in and out of myself and other senators, but as you all know, I'm sure that's um, the way the Senate operates. But thank you all very much for your insights, and we look forward to seeing the Black Sea strategy from uh, the administration sometime very soon. Thank you.